I was saying that in the end, we found that the process broke down a little bit. And like I said, at most cops, there comes a day where the process breaks down. And it's, it's simply just par for the course because you have so many things that are being negotiated, so many different items. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but you can't keep track of everything. You kind of have to pick one item and follow it. And so when it gets close to the end of COP and everything is linked together and you're like, okay, I'm not gonna get this outcome on this unless I get this outcome in this. This group is saying that they want this hair and they'll give up this hair for this. And so that sort of leads to a breakdown of the process where people don't understand what's happening. And so at that point on that day, we were in a situation where we knew that work was being done on the GST text. We knew that work was being done on all the other items that I identified as um, priority for the presidency. But because as well, whether you're coordinating or following an item, because you're only following your item, you have to rely on other people to let you know what's happening in the other areas. And so AOSIS was doing its coordination to understand what was happening in the mitigation room, what was happening in the GST room, what was happening on Just Transition, so that we could know sort of what trade-offs were being made. But at the end of it, we still felt like we didn't have a clear view of, of what the presidency was doing in terms of how they were going to resolve these issues because we were coming down to the end and we still we felt as if we didn't know that we were going to get out of Dubai. We felt as though COP could just go on for days and days. Good morning and welcome to our first community hangout of 2024. At Climate Tracker, we have monthly community hangouts where we use this as an opportunity for everyone within our community, our network, to learn about specific issues as it relates to climate change and climate reporting. So today we are going to be chatting about COP28. We're just on the heels of COP28 being over and we are joined by two very experienced COP luminaries uh, to learn about what happened at COP28, um, what were the key outcomes, what's next um, in the world of climate policy, and some of the top stories that came out of 28 and also stories that we should continue following in this year as we get ready for more of uh, the climate policy world, right? So. Uh, we'll be looking at things from uh, two different perspectives, uh, diplomacy and policy as it relates to COP and climate, climate change in the Caribbean. And then we'll also be looking at, uh, looking at it from a journalistic perspective as well. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm gonna jump straight into it. And first, our first speaker is Kristen Key. She is a climate diplomacy advisor for Climate Analytics Caribbean. She has extensive experience in international climate change negotiations on carbon markets and climate finance to issues that were very critical for the Caribbean and small island developing states at COP28. Kristen supports small island developing states on a range of climate change topics, and she represents Trinidad and Tobago in carbon market negotiations under the Paris Agreement. So we know that we have some good information to learn from Kristen today, as this was something that was a key outcome or a key negotiating track for um, at for COP28 at Dubai, right? And so most recently, Kristen also served as chair of the Article 6.4 supervisory body, uh, which is the body that's tasked with developing international carbon market rules under the Paris Agreement. Prior to joining climate analytics, Kristen worked with the Environmental Defense Fund on reducing emissions from the aviation sector. Kristen holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Environmental Studies from St. John's University and a Master's in Environmental Management from Yale School of the Environment. So I know that we're in really good hands this morning as we learn about COP28 as it relates to the policy and the key outcomes, key takeaways from what happened in Dubai. And I'm excited to hear from Kristen today. So I'm going straight over to you, Kristen. Thanks very much, Dazan, and good morning, everybody. I'm really happy to be here to share some insights on what happened at COP28. Uh, to kick it off, I'm going to share one slide uh, to get into exactly what were the key outcomes at COP28. And then after that, I think I'll just share some insights on, on COP itself, 
um, and, and what Dubai was, what COP28 was like. So let me share my screen. Okay. All right, I trust you're able to see this slide. Okay, great. Just if anybody can't see it, just signal, please. So in terms of, of what happened at COP28 and what were the key outcomes, we had a number of different items uh, that we were negotiating on and the UAE COP28 presidency sort of identified four items as their priority. There was included the global stock take, the mitigation work program, the global goal on adaptation and the uh, GST and just transition, just transition work program. And so the reason why the presidency would have identified these as priorities is because of the mandates that were under all of those topics. Essentially, we were supposed to deliver something on each of those topics at this COP. And so the presidency said, you know what? So if we want to have a, a successful COP, these are the things that we need to pay attention to. And so they really put a lot of political heft behind those topics. It doesn't mean that the other topics didn't get as much attention. It just means that for the presidency, success on COP28 meant delivering on these four items. So after a grueling two weeks of negotiations, in the end, this is what we ended up with. And what I'm showing here is sort of a stoplight representation of the key outcomes. Green is good, yellow is okay, red is not so great. So as you can see, the global stock take, which was the big ticket item, and this is the process by which we take stock of implementation of the Paris Agreement. The global stock take was meant for us to understand how parties are doing in terms of meeting their uh, nationally determined contributions under the Paris Agreement, um, and for us to overall take stock of where we are in the process. And so it was, it was really important from the start the chairs um, who were chairing this item were given a mandate to produce text as early as possible. And what that means is there was no filibustering. Sometimes at COP what happens is in the first week, we have a round of negotiations that produces nothing, where we just say, okay, we don't like this, we don't like that, we're not ready to proceed, etc. But at this COP from day one, the coaches of the GST were given a mandate to produce text, which meant we were working from day one. And that meant we went late into the night from day one. So at the end of it, the outcome on the global stock take, good and bad, um, some good things in there for sure. In terms of mitigation, we, before I get to the mitigation, in terms of science, we had a clear re-emphasis of the science, in particular, the IPCC science, which is really important because that is the basis that we use to understand the, the type of warming that we're seeing and the impacts that, we, that we're seeing as a result of climate change. And so the Global Stock Take Decision Text really re-emphasizes the science and shows us that we are not on track and that we need to do more. And we needed that to make sure that parties are able to step up, to give them the impetus to be able to step up and increase ambition. In terms of mitigation, uh, we have a number of new targets, uh, for example, tripling renewable energy, um, transitioning away from fossil fuels. All of these are recognized in the global stock take text, which is progress. It's incremental progress. Um, some may say that we could have gone further than that. But at this point, uh, these sorts of targets are what is going to help us move forward. Um, we also saw that the global stock take tax on mitigation encourages uh, parties to come forward with more ambitious uh, national human contributions, which is something that needs to happen in 2025, according to the Paris Agreement. So we already agreed that every five years, parties would come forward with, with new um, goals, new, new contributions. And so we re-emphasize that in the global stock take tax. Um, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to look at the text, but it is... I think 200 paragraphs long or, or, or close to and 21 pages long and it covers adaptation, finance, loss and damage, just transition, capacity building, technology transfer, so everything is under there um, and we got some good outcomes in terms of the other items as well. On adaptation, there's a clear recognition that we are going to need more than just a doubling of adaptation finance which is big and big for the Caribbean um, so that's really good. And it also re-emphasizes the targets that were established under the Global Goal on Adaptation text. Um, so there are a number of targets with regards to adaptation that parties agreed to under the DGA. 
Um, and there's further work to be done on that in terms of identifying indicators for those. Uh, in terms of finance, there's a, a lengthy text on finance under the GSU text as well, again, recognizing that we need more finance if we are going to move forward. Um, loss and damage welcomes the operationalization of the LD fund, which is another big win for the Caribbean region. Um, and we saw the pledges that were made to the LD fund. Uh, so that's that's really good. We're happy to see those. Um, and just transition is another area which is in the GSC text, but also has a standalone decision text. And that uh, sets up the modality for us to have more discussions on just transition as we go forward. What does it mean for different countries? What do we need to implement in order to have a transition that is actually just? Um, and in particular, I think this was also a big win for the Caribbean region because it means that we have a chance to shape the just transition discussion through this process. A lot of times just transition focuses on countries that have big extractive sectors, big energy industry, um, and move and the workforce in particular. But in the Caribbean region, a lot of our countries don't have that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to have a transition that is just. So I think uh, the decision and the modality that was set up under the just transition work program is really helpful for us to be able to uh, input into those discussions and help to shape those discussions for our region to make sure that we are not being left behind as people think about a just transition. Unfortunately, carbon markets, which is one of the rooms that I was in for the entirety of COP, spent a lot of time in that room. Unfortunately, we weren't able to agree on on decisions for Article 6.2, which refers to voluntary cooperation under the Paris Agreement or for Article 6.4, which is more of the carbon market type of activities. Basically, what happened there was that there was a divide in the room between more ambitious outcomes and outcomes that are more flexible in terms of what parties can do and what, and what they say they, they do. And so at the end of it, after several hours, several late nights, we weren't able to agree there. Um, I think that's quite disappointing because a lot of countries are sort of pinning their ambition on carbon markets, which in itself is controversial. Um, but if, if, if they're seeing that they need carbon markets in order to increase ambition, then, and we have no decision on it, then that leaves us in a, a, a bit of a dilemma in terms of how we move forward. Uh, we also had an outcome on youth, gender, and social inclusion, which I think is really great. There will be a presidency youth climate champion, um, and this is in the, uh, the outcomes that, that UAE consensus package, which is really great. We haven't had that before. So overall, there's some good things, some bad things um, that came out of COP28. It's all a balance, uh, and we live to fight another day. So I will stop sharing my screen now and jump back yeah. okay great so yeah i'm happy to take any questions on those um in terms of sharing my insights on cop 28 and and dubai and the uae presidency and the process that was run um what i would say is this was one of the most grueling cops that i've been to i've been to several now but that idea that we needed to produce text from the beginning and work throughout the night from the beginning. To me, it showed commitment from the parties that, okay, this COP is important. We need to get some clear outcomes. We are willing to do the work from the start in order to do so. Um, I've been to COPs where literally the entire first week you sit and you are flabbergasted by the fact that parties are going in circles and not actually trying to make progress. I don't think that that was the case at this COP. I think at this COP, parties came ready to work, even though it meant that we were exhausted by the break day, which is in the middle of COP, you get one day off. By that day, people were flat out, but that didn't stop them from coming back to the second week and being as committed and as ready to work. So I really appreciated that. And I think the presidency ran a great process in that regard. Like, by forcing the, the mandate to produce text from the beginning. Um, it also meant that we had some constructive discussions because when you have a clear text in front of you, your interventions are no longer sort of pie in the sky. They are clearly addressing specific things, whether this is missing from your text, whether we need to see more ambition in this regard, and these, this is the language we would like to see, and it allowed for more constructive conversation between parties. So I really appreciated that, despite the, the exhaustion that came with it. Um, 
at the end of it, I think that the process, this is coming on to the last two days, which is always chaotic at any COP. The last two days at any COP, always chaotic. There comes a point where nobody knows what's going on in the process, including the negotiators. Um, so that's to be expected. But I do think that in the end, it, it broke down a little bit. Um, and and some things could have we could have been done to improve that to avoid that that breakdown. Yes, it's part of the course, but in the end, I I do feel as though a little bit more could have been done to avoid a situation to avoid the situation that we ended up with at the very end. Um, so yeah, I think I'll I'll stop there because I'm sure people have questions and I'd love to hear Colleen's views on what happened at COP. Um, so I'll pass it back to you, Dazan. Thanks. Lot, Kristen, and thank you for breaking in and summarizing it down like so well for us. I think um, before I move on to Colleen, I just have one question. And please, if you have any questions, please feel free to drop them in the chat. We'll be doing a full-on Q&A session with both speakers at the end. Uh, but just one quick question for, for you, Kristen. So we, we know that there are two, you, you, you specifically pointed out three um, areas, right, which we're really happy for. Um, of course, the loss and damage financing took took the cake at the start and all of that with all the pledges. And we know that there are two areas that are red areas, which we're looking at mitigation and the Article 6, right? We know that what those issues are. But my, my question would be for the yellow areas, what are the real points of contention that has that not in the green, but not in the red for each of them? Sure, that is a great question. Thanks, Dazan. So in particular, on the global stock take, the reason why it's yellow is because we know we need more ambition. And so while the decision text from the global software delivers on a lot, um, and in particular delivers on a lot that could be helpful for the Caribbean, we know that we are in the critical decade for climate action and it could do more. So that's the that's that's why we say that on global stock day. With regard to climate finance, we still don't have a definition of climate finance. Developed countries still haven't delivered on the hundred billion. Um, we're still falling short uh, of climate finance that is needed. And if we are to implement the targets that came from the global stock take text, we are going to need finance to do that. And so that's why we have that one in yellow as well. We need, there still needs to be more. We're grateful for what we got, but we still need to do more and we need to see more. Unjust transition, that one is in yellow because what we established was the modality for the discussions, but we didn't actually get into the substance of what a just transition looks like for different countries, et cetera. And that's just simply because what we needed to deliver on at this COP is the modality so that we can have the discussions. As we go on at COP29 and, and move forward and we have those substantive discussions, we can decide whether we're moving towards green or we're moving towards red on, on the just transition discussions. So I hope that answers for you. Yeah, it does. Thank you so much, Kristen. Um, okay, so I'm going to go straight into with Colleen. Um, Colleen, I hope you're ready. Thank you so, so much, Kristen. We'll come back to you with some more questions at the end, all right? So now it's introduced to you, Colleen Hussein. Colleen is a journalist at Garden Media Limited and CNC3, and he was one of our Caribbean Climate Tracker Fellows um, reporting in person um, in Dubai. Colleen is an award-winning multimedia journalist based in Trinidad and Tobago, and since 2014, he has reported on weather, climate, and the environment for his online media company, Trinidad and Tobago Weather Center. In 2019, Colleen joined Guardian Media Limited in Trinidad and Tobago as their weather anchor, and he's been producing compelling weather, climate, and environmental coverage across television, print, digital, radio, you name it. And he has led Guardian Media's coverage to implement weather events such as tropical cyclones, floods, as well as at international climate conferences such as COP27 and COP28. So, Colleen, as we go across to you now, I'd love for you to share what were the biggest stories coming out of COP, and um, and you, you can share some of your stories as well. Um, and what stories were you following uh, during your time in Dubai? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so COP this year, um, compared to COP27 last year, and I covered COP26 virtually, is that we hit the ground running um, because at the start, first day of COP, loss and damage, um, the decisions that were made by the transitional committee were adopted. 
Um, and I was fully prepared to, you know, track this throughout the negotiation process. So thankfully, you know, had a story ready to go. But that was perhaps one of the big wins that we got for COP28. Um, but we also saw a significant number of international pledges um, at the start of COP as well. And they were a lot to track. So we had pledges for fossil fuels, uh, for phasing out. And that one came at the end. We had pledges for the global methane pledge. That one came in week one as well. Um, pledges on health, the global cooling pledge. Um, and about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different pledges that I was tracking. So fossil fuels, renewables and nuclear, food systems, deforestation, nature, methane, heavy industries, health and global cooling. Now, something that I've noted with these pledges. So it's great to have them. It's great to have a lot of these countries sign on to, you know, tripling renewables, doubling energy and energy efficiency, um, putting health uh, as a crux of their climate climate change policy. But it's something that always happens when we have these grandiose pledges. And then the year that follows is that we don't see the follow up work. Um, countries love to sign on to things without ratifying it at home. Um, and that is a shortcoming that I've seen in the past year with COP27 into COP28. So we'll see what happens for going into COP29. Now, the great thing about Climate Track is we had several journalists from the Caribbean region all tracking different things. I came in to look at loss and damage, which I think was a common theme amongst journalists, but also looking at the early warnings for all initiative, which we did see some progress on. Uh, the Caribbean region is the second most disaster prone region in the world. And um, having early warnings is very low hanging fruit to save lives and prevent damage to lives, livelihoods and property. Um, uh, right now, there's work going on with the Caribbean Meteorological Organization, uh, the UNDRR, which is the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, um, and several other agencies. And some of these reports are on Vail at COP28, um, uh, show showcasing the, the progress that was made um, over the last year. And they really need to be hauling their progress quite quickly because under the plan from the United Nations Secretary General, um, all countries around the world need to be on an early warning system, a multi-hazard early warning system by 2027. So the in the in within the last year, we saw seven additional countries globally get placed under one of these systems. In the Caribbean region, we still have about 50% of countries not under an effective early warning system. So, you know, still lots of work to be done. And some of the reporting that will follow is that, um, you know, the Caribbean Meteorological Organization and member states are now looking to other um, other organizations like the Cruise Initiative, the GCF, to get funding to uh, conduct the assessments needed to have an early warning system for several countries. Trinidad and Tobago, we have an early warning system. Um, how effective is it? That's a different question. Now back onto what we saw at COP. You know, um, outside of loss and damage and this uh, early warning systems. Uh, we had other fellows tracking other stories that were quite important to the region, um, looking at food and water security. Um, and there's a lot of, again, pledges that were made either multilateral, bilateral pledges to different countries and agreements that were made. And that's some of the beauty of COP that it's this great equalizer where you can sit around a table with people that you don't usually see or you have to make these large meetings to um, just get an agreement where it can happen in the back room of a negotiating room or at a pavilion. So we saw several of these pledges come forward with protecting forests, um, looking at how the Caribbean region can secure food and water security. Um, and that's some of the stories that I know Kalisha from Jamaica, Vishani and Steph Vishani from uh, Guyana, Stephanie from uh, Suriname, they were all tracking as well at COP. Um, and it was something that was important for us here in Trinidad and Tobago. Now, something I specifically looked at was looking at renewable energy and green energy in the Caribbean region while we were there. Um, you had the pledge to um, triple energy, uh, renewable energy and double energy efficiency. So um, there was a memorandum of understanding signed by Ansa Macal, which is a conglomerate in the Caribbean region, and Kenneth G Energy Limited um, for a green energy or green hydrogen um, sort of a green hydrogen 
consortium across the region. Um, we already uh, have a green hydrogen plant that is under development in Trinidad and Tobago. Chemistry Energy has been working with uh, Dominica for the last several years to develop their geothermal energy and get green hydrogen going there as well. Um, so, you know, shifting away from fossil fuels and moving into other sources of energy that can support uh, declining uh, natural gas uh, reserves in the Caribbean region. But this is a big but. Uh, for from my perspective and from where I report in Trinidad and Tobago, our country has repeatedly said as long as there's a market for hydrocarbons, Trinidad and Tobago will remain in that market, which means we are going to continue producing fossil fuels, namely natural gas, which has been marketed by all of our oil and gas CEOs as this transition fuel, but it still produces carbon emissions, so carbon dioxide and methane emissions, right? So that is that was something that both myself, uh, we had another reporter from Trinidad and Tobago, Ryan Bechu, and then a delegation from Trinidad and Tobago led by our Minister of Planning all had to grapple with because while all of us were at COP talking about clean energy, re, uh, renewable energy, our Prime Minister was in London making deals with um, oil and gas CEOs. And then during the time of COP, we had the situation where the dragon gas deal, which is a major natural gas deal um, between Trinidad and Tobago and Venezuela, um, was signed. And they, that dragon gas field has several trillion carbon feet of natural gas that is to be produced in the coming decade, um, which means Trinidad and Tobago is still going to be a major emitter of um, uh, carbon dioxide and carbon emissions. But on that same note, we had another pledge surrounding methane, um, the global uh, methane pledge to, you know, stamp out uh, methane, methane emissions from um, industry, specifically the hydrocarbon industry. That is something that the natural gas company in Trinidad and Tobago, they've been at the forefront using technology to reduce their emissions by 90%. And I think all 50 plus um, oil and gas companies in Trinidad and Tobago have signed on to that pledge as well. So that's good news, um, but you know, it's still not enough. And another story, you know, this one came at the end with the UAE consensus where countries agreed to um, phase out fossil fuels, but it came with like multiple asterisks because uh, it the word unabated was used in there. Um, and for those that are unaware of what unabated means, it means that, well, there's there really isn't a set definition for abated versus unabated and unabated would mean that fossil fuel companies or fossil, uh, generally emissions can be released into the atmosphere without any limits on it but abated means that we need to we need to you know have some sort of limit on how much of the emissions whether it's 10 20 30 40 50 percent of that emissions is captured and stored or mitigated away but in the UNFCCC process, there really isn't a set definition for what abated versus unabated is. So that means a company could say, well, we have captured 10% of our carbon emissions. So we have met the definition for abated. But realistically, it needs to be way more than that for us to hit the global goal to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And an IPCC footnote shows that the definition should be 90%. But companies aren't doing that. And really, this started in COP26 around coal and now has finally shifted to fossil fuels. So while it's a win that, you know, we see the agreement to phase out fossil fuels in the final decision or cover decision, but it came with so many caveats that a lot of small island states are just like, what are you doing? This is not going to help us. In fact, this is now really sealing the deal on the death of uh, one point limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which you know is a significant significant problem because we ended 2023 as the warmest year on record, and many of the global averages for annual temperatures came in at about 1.48 degrees Celsius. In fact, one of them 1.52 degrees Celsius. So if for the one, and we will have year-to-year -year variability on how hot the earth is, but let's take a look at what exactly happened in 2023. We had significant floods, significant heat, significant droughts. Rising sea levels have flooded parts of the United States, small island states, parts of the Pacific um, uh, islands have lost up to 50% of their land. 
if this is what has already happened and we haven't really sustained across that 1.5 degree threshold and there's still this commitment to continue producing fossil fuels what is going to happen when this temperature rise um i'll stop there i know we have lots of questions and stuff and i think that's about 10 minutes so i'll toss back to design thank you so much Colleen. and you you really you've really brought out a couple interesting points um because you know all in all there were some really contentious uh, tracks, right, uh, throughout the the time in Dubai. So, and it, it's sort of like us being in a. You mentioned Trinidad and Tobago, and just uh, just feeling that sort of cognitive dissonance, for lack of a better phrase, um, in that you know we want something, but we're also pursuing something else, right? And there's no sort of one track mind towards. Uh, the transition. So I'm going to throw a question for you, Kristen. How was it for you um, being, uh, you know, in the room, being one of the people in the room facing um, the negotiations and so on, and representing small island developing states? And specifically, I'm going to ask you to address specifically the, the uh, I think it was the penultimate day of COP when there was this um, sort of situation around uh, the fossil fuel language being very weak and so on. What was that like? And what was the perspective or the or the um, priority areas for island, for island, small island development states for the AOSIS block as a whole? Like, how would you describe being in that situation? And do you think that out of it, we got what we wanted? Thanks very much for that question, Dazan. So yes, that day, was dramatic. I mean, just, just overall, it was a dramatic day. Like I had mentioned earlier, I was saying that in the end, we found that the process broke down a little bit. And like I said, at most cops, there comes a day where the process breaks down. And it's, it, it's simply just par for the course because you have so many things that are being negotiated, so many different items. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but you can't keep track of everything. You kind of have to pick one item and follow it. And so when it gets close to the end of COP and everything is linked together and you're like, okay, I'm not gonna get this outcome on this unless I get this outcome in this. This group is saying that they want this here and they'll give up this here for this. And so that sort of leads to a breakdown of the process where people don't understand what's happening. And so at that point on that day, we were in a situation where we knew that work was being done on the GST text. We knew that work was being done on all the other items that I identified as um, priority for the presidency. But because as well, whether you're coordinating or following an item, because you're only following your item, you have to rely on other people to let you know what's happening in the other areas. And so AOSIS was doing its coordination to understand what was happening in the mitigation room, what was happening in the GST room, what was happening on just transition so that we could know sort of what trade-offs were being made. But at the end of it, we still felt like we didn't have a clear view of, of what the presidency was doing in terms of how they were going to resolve these issues because we were coming down to the end and we still we felt as if we didn't know that we were going to get out of Dubai. We felt as though COP could just go on for days and days. And so at that point, AOSIS really had to grapple with how do we handle the situation? Um, we don't want to be left out of any conversations. We want to make sure that our voice is being heard. What we are saying matters. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of life and death, as, as Colleen said, for our islands, for our countries, for our people. And so at that point, you know, we, we decided that it was time for us to make a statement to make sure that our voices were being heard. And so, yeah, at that point, we just kind of buckled down. Everybody recognized what was happening and we buckled down and we said, OK, this is what we're going to do, X, Y and Z. Um, and, and that's how that played out. In terms of did we get what we want? Um, I don't know if you've also heard this in negotiations, you never get what you want. It's a negotiation. So you get what you negotiate for. And I would like to say that AOSIS was very much present in these negotiations. I can tell you our AOSIS coordinator on GST and on mitigation, the two coordinators, they didn't get sleep. They didn't get food. 
when I tell you that they were involved, it was meeting after meeting after meeting, sessions, consultations, consultation with the presidency. And on top of that, they need to come and update AOSIS, that AOSIS know what's going on. Then they go into another meeting with another regional group. They were very much present and they negotiated hard, hard. So while, yes, the outcome might be a bit disappointing in terms of not getting exactly what we asked for, it's a negotiation and that's the nature of the process. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers the question. Happy to answer any follow-ups with regard to that. I totally agree that, you know, our small island, I think with every COP, our representation and just the strength of our, the small island developing states representation just keeps getting stronger. And that is just amazing um, to me. So I definitely think we just need to keep up the good work. And, it, and it's such a young team as well, which is amazing. Um, so that's always very inspiring. And I'm going to, before we take, uh, I see Kristen has raised a hand. Yes, Kristen? Sorry, Dazan. And one more thing to add in terms of the flavor of what was happening coming down to the end. I remember when the GST text dropped and EOSIS met to discuss the text. And our coordinators started going through the text. It was emotional. I'll just say that. Emotional. <laughs> I remember feeling like I don't want to be in her shoes right now. Yes, it's definitely very stressful. So I'm going to go to, thank you for that reflection, Kristen. I'm going to go to Kaleen before we take some more questions um, that I see have been in the chat. So Kaleen, as a, as a journalist, right, reporting on these issues at COP28, are there any specific issues that you think would left, maybe weren't, or maybe were underreported that should have been reported on more? I think that, you know, we, we had strength in the number of Caribbean reporters that were there. Um, so maybe it was reported more in Jamaica than it was in Trinidad or more in Ghana or Suriname than it was in other countries. Um, I do think that the conversation was a little bit lost on the abated versus unabated issues of fossil fuel, uh, fossil fuel emissions. Um, because I know specifically for Trinidad and Tobago, and this would be a shortcoming of mine, because obviously I'm from Trinidad and Tobago and I'm reporting here, um, would be we we have a plan from certain oil and gas companies to conduct carbon capture and storage in our depleted reservoirs. Um, and really, how is that going to be done? And how are they going to meet their commitments to become carbon neutral um, in the coming decades? And what are their perspectives on the pledges that came out of COP, whether it's the Global Methane Pledge, the cover decision for well, the UAE consensus, and even the negotiation negotiating process. Because um, one thing that the COP presidency said was that they wanted to bring oil and gas companies to the table because they are the ones that are causing the problem. Um, so that while that was done on an international stage, I don't think that was really done on a local stage. Um, and I mean, it's the same thing in Guyana, the same thing in Suriname. Um, within the borders, how are those companies um, going to meet the agreements um, that, that are made at these international conferences? Um, and I think that that would be one of the things that, that was missed, um, something that I would be working on this year, um, getting their perspectives and getting their plans. Um, and I will answer Kate's question while while I'm here. Um, so the Caribbean reports that are available for our region, uh, there aren't exactly country-specific profiles for um, the decisions for early warnings. There is a global report that was released by the World Meteorological Organization in conjunction with the um, United Nations Disaster Risk Reduction. Um, but specifically, what if you are looking for something like what Carbon Brief does, um, for tracking each outcome for each part of the negotiating process with a specific focus on the Caribbean region. Uh, as far as I'm aware, there's not one of those. Cool. All right, thank you, Kaleen. And I think maybe before we take the questions um, in the chat, I think what I'd love to hear from you, Kristen, is where do we go from here in terms of what is the next uh, you know, meeting or uh, um, discussion, negotiations that we, um, people who pe people who are following this process, 
should look out for in 2024? What it, what is what does the climate policy will look like um, in 2024? Thanks, Dazan. So I think I will say two things. First of all, is apart from the meetings that are coming up, we need to be looking at implementation of the commitments that were made in 2023. So as I think you and Colleen said in the beginning, this issue of follow-up is a big one. Um, what we recognize though is that in order to implement the targets that we agreed to in 2023 at COP28, finance needs to be provided. There's no way we could do this without finance. And I think Colleen made a really good point just now with regard to the private sector. Private sector needs to be on board. They have finance in addition to whatever public finance exists. And so we need to be working on, people who work in the space need to be following up in, in that regard. Where is the finance coming from? How can we in the Caribbean get that finance? Um, and then how do we implement what we agreed to at, at COP28? Um, so I think overall, that's a, a general policy uh, outlook on, on what happens in 2024. With regard to the meetings, we recognize that the next COP is the finance COP because we have something called the new collective quantified goal on finance, which is basically the new goal in terms of like the new 100 billion. Um, and we know that we didn't deliver on the last 100 billion. And so I think a lot of, a lot of the discussions this year in the lead up to COP29 will be focused on finance. Um, and I don't know, for those who have followed finance or for those who don't, finance usually has about 20 agenda items under the, the broad topic. Um, so it's a lot. And if you follow in finance, you need to follow finance alone because you have no time to do anything else. Um, so I think that's really going to be key this, this year at this upcoming COP. But then we also have to out, uh, have the outlook to the next COP, COP 13, because it's going to be in Brazil, one. And Brazil, um, they had put forward this mission 1.5 agenda item in the beginning, and it ended up getting subsumed under the, the global stock take. And so we don't know what this mission 1.5 is supposed to deliver. And knowing that 1.5 is crucial for Caribbean SIDS, we need to make sure that we are in that discussion, following that discussion, and, and that mission 1.5 delivers for us. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we, we have to have a two-year outlook in terms of what is coming up next. And then finally, we also have the uh, new, what well, the updated nationally determined contributions, which parties are supposed to deliver um, in 2025. So th those are the three things I'll see that we need to look at. We need to look at implementation of targets, finance, and then mission 1.5. Great, that's, that's great, that's great. So that's some good information. I'm gonna jump into a question from Rihanna. And this question is for Kristen. She wants to know, Rihanna wants to know, um, what does the outcome of COP28 overall mean for the Caribbean? What policies should we be looking at at a national level um, and she would love to have some examples. Thanks for the question, Rihanna. Um, so what I would say is you could look at it with an international outlook and a regional outlook. From the international perspective, in terms of what it means for the Caribbean, I think that there's a clear commitment to keeping below 1.5 in the decision text. Whether we deliver on that or not is a different question. But the decision text that we got clearly shows us that the science is showing us something and that we need to increase our climate action. This is an urgent decade. Um, and I think that's a win for us, given that Caribbean islands, along with other small island developing states, were the ones who pushed for 1.5 when we were agreeing to the Paris Agreement. So internationally, that's my outlook in terms of what the decisions mean for the Caribbean. Regionally, from an implementation perspective, I think we need to be thinking about how we implement those targets. Um, is it that is it that we are solely going to focus on adaptation and loss and damage, access to the loss and damage fund, et cetera, um, implementing adaptation actions? Or are we going to be trying to push the envelope in terms of showcasing ourselves as being leaders on mitigation as well, despite the fact that we have very small uh, emissions, uh, very small emissions profile? So that's that's my 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 take on what it means for the Caribbean. Um, we need to be ensuring that we kind of walk, walk the walk, walk the talk, whatever is the same thing, in terms of, of doing the implementation as well. We, we can't be complacent and sit back and say, oh, this is for developed countries to do 
they have a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, let them handle it. I think we in the region also need to be showing that we can contribute as well. Um, I also see she asked what advice we could give to CSOs um, to engage with policymakers at the national level. I think, I think that's important looking into how you engage with them, um, taking advantage of consultations that they may have and CSOs are the ones who really hold governments accountable. Uh, so keep doing that work to hold your government accountable in terms of implementation of the Paris Agreement. Yeah, back to you, Dazan. Yeah, I'm going to stick with you, Kristen, for a while before we go across to Colleen. Sorry about all the, the stress being fired. Um, but <laughs> I see Anka is asking a question, um, and it relates to the GGA, right? So for those who don't know, the GGA is the Global Goal and Adaptation. And one of the key uh, tracks for uh, the Caribbean for small island developing states is adaptation, specifically adaptation for the Caribbean. So, uh, Kristen, tell us what happened with the GG specifically at COP28, um, given its importance for, given the importance of adaptation for Caribbean states and other developing countries. Thanks, Dazan. So, I will tell you based on on what I could follow, because I wasn't following adaptations. I wasn't in the room for that. I was in the other rooms. But based on my understanding and, and what I said before is in, a in the negotiations, you always have linkages to other items. So while it may seem like nothing is happening on one item, it's probably because something is happening elsewhere that is stolen progress on that item. And I think that's what happened with the GGA. Um, I, I don't think that it is a lack of, I mean, this is my personal perspective. I don't think that there's a lack of recognition of the importance with regard to adaptation. Uh, SIDS were very present in the room, but adaptation is also really important for the African region. Um, and they were also very vocal in the room as well, based on my understanding. But I think it is a matter of, of negotiation tactics um, and, and what you could get where etc and horse trading and that sort of stuff um so i think that's why it may look as though nothing was really being done on adaptation but it, that wasn't the case it was i think it was a matter of of trying to get the best outcome that could come on adaptation but back behind the scenes things were going on in that regard yeah all right thank you Kristen. so i'm gonna go to colleen and this question is basically about the gsd i would love to get um, both of your perspectives on this, because you know the GSD was a core part of was meant to be a foundational part of COP28. So, Colleen, in your following GSD, and of course being a GSD ambassador for Climate Anal Analytics Caribbean, tell us in your perspective um, what what were your thoughts on how the GSD came, what happened with the GSD at COP28? Um, you can tell us as well, specifically, what do you think are the next steps? Um, this year, for somebody, for a journalist who is like now getting into reporting on COP and wants to learn about the GSD and how to follow it, how would you advise such a person? That's a great question. Um, so the GSD, if it was done right, and it was um, needed to look at what we've done and the gaps that what we've done to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement since 2015 till now, the gaps that exist, which we saw, I believe it was 80% of countries are not doing enough um, to breach the 1.5 targets or limit warming below the 1.5 target. But the most important part of the GSD is what needs to be done now um, to keep the world under that warming target. And that comes from our improved NDCs. Um, so for what's next would be looking at countries and NDCs and seeing how that is going to be improved in the coming two years, because I believe it was the executive uh, secretary of the UNFCCC said he put the countries on notice that he expects to see new NDCs by 2025, which is COP30 in Brazil. And Kristen mentioned that. Um, so if you are tracking the GSD, you need to be looking at not only just what countries are doing related to their NDCs, um, whether it's their intentional or unintentional NDCs, but also what else they're doing with regards to the pledges surrounding COPs, the, specifically the methane pledge 
um, pledges on renewable energy and energy efficiency, seeing where else they're making gains that may not be um, necessarily or explicitly dictated in that NDC process. Um, there are several resources online, especially from climate analytics, on explaining what the global stock take is, and they break it down very simply. So I suggest that be your starting point if you are looking to begin reporting on the GST, because it is going to be a topic that is going to stick with us um, for the next couple of years. And Kristen also mentioned financing. A lot of these targets are not cheaply achieved. Um, at COP28, we saw 700 million, I believe, pledged for loss and damage. But you also have other funds that are available, whether it's the Global Environment Fund, the Global Climate Fund, and other different funding facilities that countries can access. So for journalists that are looking to get into reporting on what comes out of the GST, also look at how are countries accessing these funds what projects have been implemented in the past, have they been successful? And how are countries going to access that funds or funds to make the progress happen? Um, really all of those are things that I believe journalists should be tracking, regardless of you're from a small island developing state or um, a superpower like the US. Really those are the things that you should be looking at. Awesome. That's some really good advice, Colleen. Thank you so much. And on the same note of the GST, I'm going to go to, to Kristen because I know that there's some really good news coming out of uh, Climate Analytics Caribbean on the GST. So, Kristen, I'm going to give you the opportunity to just put that information out there. Thanks, Dazan. So, um, you know, one of the missions of Climate Analytics uh, Caribbean is to inform the general public of what happens in these nebulous international negotiations and so colleagues of mine one of them is actually on the call have been working on a documentary which explains the gst and what it means for the caribbean and we are very pleased and proud to say that it was premiered yesterday at green screen um and so you know we're, we're gonna be sharing that through our networks etc um, to allow the general public to really understand what the GST is, what does it mean for the Caribbean, uh, and, and how we are impacted, basically. So please be on the lookout for that. Um, but the documentary is really good, and, and we're very proud of the work that our colleagues have been able to do to, to pull it up. Uh, I know Bianca is on the call. Bianca has worked on it. I don't know if she wants to say anything. This is me putting her on the spot, so if she doesn't, no problem. <laughs> Okay, yeah, back to your design. So it's fine. <laughs> Thank you so much. And so please do look out for that documentary. I'm excited to see it. Um, it's so good to see when, you know, we have this sort of Caribbean-born content being put out there um, by Caribbean people, for Caribbean people, about Caribbean people. Um, it's really important. So thanks a lot for the work that's being done by Climate Analytics. And um, if we don't have any more, questions i see we have a question here from ablis i'm so sorry if i'm pronouncing your name incorrectly um but this question is for Kristen, and it's it says being present at cop how committed will leaders in make to making sure they put developing countries in the limelight so do you think that developing countries got the limelight at this cop um the limelight. I think that's a difficult question because to me, the voices of developing countries are, are always heard. Um, and I guess for me, it's a difficult question because I feel like it's more of a media question. So Colleen might be able to answer it better than me. If I take it from a negotiations perspective, I will say that developed countries would de developing countries, sorry, would definitely at the table. Um, they were definitely pushing for their priorities, um, engaging with partners, and partners were engaging with us. So I think from that perspective, from the negotiation perspective, I think that they developing countries were definitely at the table and able to engage in the discussions and be heard. Um, but if it's more of a media question, I think I'll let Colleen take it. 
Yeah. Um, from a media perspective, I mean, it depends on which track you are following, right? So there are over like 20, 30 different major topics that you could be following at COP. I followed only a few of them. I would say on the issue for early warnings for all, um, Africa has certainly taken the lead um, on that topic. Uh, in fact, they are the ones that are spearheading the effort because a lot of the countries that are without an early warning system are within that continent. Um, and they also have really good examples for working multi-hazard systems that are effective on communicating risks and hazards to the last uh, end user. So that um, that they certainly took the lead on that. Their voices were very much prominent. Um, on the negotiating standpoint, um, I think I would have, being on the train in Dubai, um, if you were there, it was like a model UN meeting. So every morning you get to talk to different people from around the world. Um, so I was fortunate to one day I was talking to someone from Cameroon. The other day I spent my hour and a half commute talking to somebody from Zimbabwe. We had a delegation from uh, Madagascar. And like a lot of them were talking about the, the their voices were being heard. Um, whether they have the limelight or not, I guess I really don't know a lot about African media if they were being covered back home. but. They, they had very um, positive outlooks on the negotiation process and what was going on at COP. So from that regard, yeah, they had the limelight in the in like Expo City itself. Outside of that, I, I genuinely don't know. All right, thank you so much. And I'm seeing, uh, I think this will be the last question as we come up, come up to the hour. I'm seeing a question from Kate and she asks, you know, at the moment, there's a legal question before the ICJ from Vanuatu ah, on the obligations of states regarding climate change and the consequences and a number of a number of Caribbean countries have joined with written statements. Did COP28 spend any time on this from a SIDS perspective? Um, so I, I could answer a bit of this. So when the ICJ uh, I, th I can't remember the exact verbiage of what it was, but at COP27, that's really where they led the charge to get countries to sign on to this ICJ proposal. Um, and in fact, there are two proposals that were going on, one that is heading to the ICJ and one that was heading to the UN General Assembly for it to be adopted there. Um, there was a lot of media coverage around that. In fact, I would have um, uh, hosted a high-level panel on the with the Vanuatu president, their lead negotiator, um, the Bahamian prime minister and several other um, world leaders who were championing that cause for both of these um, proposals. Now, it over the last year, before COP28, it would have gone to the respective bodies, both the ICJ and the UN General Assembly. So they got countries to sign on to them. At COP28, we saw a different treaty pop up, which is the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. And that had a lot of buy-in from small island states and in fact you had colombia which is a major petro state signed on to that so with specific regards to the legal question before the icj at vanuatu i didn't see a lot of push from the commonwealth foundation who were they were the ones that were leading that charge at cop 27 and even from vanuatu they were focused on this fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty at cop 28 so I didn't see a lot of coverage, but it's certainly going on in the background. One of many different um, things that small island developing states are trying to hold larger countries and more wealthier countries and the countries that really cause the problem of anthropogenic global warming, hold their feet to the fire, not only through the UNFCCC process, but through the UN process and through um, the courts, international courts. Thank you so much, Colleen. And I see that Cindy, thank you for your great contribution in the chat there, Cindy. And Cindy is saying that the global goal and adaptation outcome is primarily is primarily built around developing country asks, and that's, that's a fact. And while it's not perfect, this would not have been an issue without developing countries. And that's a good way, I think, to end um, the note. So thank you so much, Cindy, for that little um, piece of information because it's it basically covers everything with regards to how developing countries have really been pushing for adaptation um, goals. 
So thank you so much to everyone for joining. Before we go, I'd really like to let you know that during the crazy couple of weeks in Dubai, um, we did launch a new website. It's the Caribbean Climate Tracker website, specifically for Caribbean stories, Caribbean climate stories. So if you want to read these stories, you can head over to climatetrackercaribbean.org and you will find Colleen's stories and Stephanie's stories and Vishani, all of them, Kalisha published stories during COP and all of the climate justice stories that we've been covering as well throughout the years. So you can check those out. And right now I also have two interesting, um, one, one opportunity that I can share with you. We are currently accepting applications for Climate Journalism Awards. So I'll drop the link to that in the chat and you can check it out, share it amongst your networks. And I just want to say thank you so much to everyone who, who, who's joined us to this, this morning. And um, thank you for the information, Kristen and Colleen. And thank you um, for everyone uh, for sticking it out with us. So I hope you enjoy the rest of your week. And we look forward to seeing you again in our next community hangout where we discuss Caribbean issues, Caribbean climate issues, and really get that information out there as it should be. So thank you so much and enjoy the rest of your day. Bye, everyone.